Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com, an attorney, Mo DeWitt, proud presenter of WMFE's Engage program. Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases, such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, the Florida legislature is weighing a ban for youth using social media. We will talk to a counselor about how social media addiction affects development. And Orlando's Poet Laureate joins us to drop some rhymes. Right now, though, traffic congestion is an issue most of us will encounter on the roads of Central Florida. In Orange County, resident surveys revealed it is the top transportation challenge that they face. Mayor Jerry Demings pushed for a regional transportation sales tax to pay for transit needs for the growing county. But residents voted against adopting a 1% tax increase in November of 2022. Mayor Demings is revisiting the idea of letting voters weigh in again this year. In order to address the $21 billion deficit of transit opportunities within our community and infrastructure needs, the only funding methodology that is sufficient enough uh, to produce enough revenue to address that is the sales tax. And so what we did this year, after economists had projected a recession sometime during 2023, uh, that did not happen, of course. The country did not go into a recession. In fact, our economy seems to be thriving at this point. So I waited until what I thought would be a good period of time to perhaps at least re-engage with the conversation amongst our Board of County Commission about the prospects of renewing the sales tax initiative on the ballot for 2024. And so at the Board of County Commission meeting, we had a conversation with our board just about were they interested in renewing uh, the uh, sales tax effort. In order for that to move forward, the majority of our board members must vote to advance the tax again to the ballot. In order to get on the ballot in November of this year during the presidential election cycle, a lot of things have to happen. The board has to be informed about its options and the details associated with the plan. We have to restructure the plan. We can't simply go back with the same plan that we used in 2022 because it fails. So we know that we have to improve the plan and communicate that plan to the citizens and get input from the citizens in developing that plan of action. We have a timeline, a deadline. In order for this to go on the ballot, the state of Florida Office of Public Policy and Government Accountability, sometimes referred to as OPAGA for short, has to approve of the referendum and approve that the local division of government 
has the financial capability and the administrative capability, if the ballot initiative passes, to manage uh, those funds. We know that it's about $759 million that potentially could be raised uh, by the transportation sales tax. And um, that's a full penny. It could be a half penny. That means it would be less than that, you know, $359 million or so, if or half of the, the $759 million, I should say, would be available to be used for infrastructure improvements. No one, I think, believes that we don't have a traffic congestion problem, a growing traffic congestion problem in this community, and they want their government officials to do something about it. And I've simply tried to lead the effort and the conversation with what that looks like as a community. We can't solve it without both public and private participation in the solution. A couple of follow-ups. You mentioned the $21 billion deficit for transit. What does that mean? What is not getting paid for? What has to be paid for? What is not getting paid for is we have not been successful in substantially expanding the local commuter rail that is called SunRail, and right now the commuter rail runs from Osceola County through Orange County, through Seminole County, and into Volusia County. The plan is for 61 miles of continuous uh, track uh, for commuter rail. The commuter rail today uh, is a great start, but it doesn't have enough connectivity because geographically it doesn't go to all corners of the county. And therefore, the ridership is not what it potentially could be. In order to expand the commuter rail to go into the four quadrants of the county, it's a costly proposition. That would increase ridership and provide a true multimodal source of transit for many people in our community who cannot afford to own an automobile, uh, who may not be able to even drive. Uh, What we do know is that in order to build the types of roadway systems that's well-connected, that's not infringing on environmentally sensitive lands. Uh, It takes money to provide that. We have individuals who want to ride their bicycles to work and uh, other forms of transit within our community to improve the number of safe bicycle and pedestrian pathways within our community requires money to improve the coordination of traffic engineering systems across jurisdictions. That means uh, that we will have to share some data between the county and the cities within Orange County and perhaps the region. It's costly to do that. So building roads, coming up with a multimodal system of transit, coming up with improvements in lighting and other uh, safety features requires a lot of money. And that is where we get the $21 billion needs that's happened been estimated at this time. You mentioned not everything would be taxed. What would be taxed? It's probably better to talk about what wouldn't be taxed because it's a shorter list. Uh, What wouldn't be taxed are essential grocery items. You don't pay the sales tax on many of the grocery items. You wouldn't pay uh, the sales tax on medicine or prescription medications. You wouldn't pay the sales tax up to 
a certain amount, I should say, you, you will pay the sales tax on big ticket items. So if you bought an automobile, for example, for the majority of the cost of the vehicle, you don't pay the sales tax. You pay sales tax up to a point, and then depending upon what the legislature does with it, uh, you pay a portion of the sales tax on big ticket items. Some of the tax on commercial rentals, et cetera, you don't pay sales tax on those items. And so there are a number of other things that you don't pay the sales tax for. And because of that, the remaining sales tax is estimated uh, will be paid for by the residents who live here, but the majority will be paid for by non-residents, by the visitors who come here. The state of Florida estimates that the sales tax today, if it was a full penny, again, is somewhere around the $759 million on an annual basis, if it was a full penny. However, better than 50% of the people who pay the sales tax in Orange County are those who don't live here. They're the visitors. They're the ones coming and helping to clog up our roadway. And essentially, uh, that means that they pay the better part of the sales tax. Today, that, that estimate could be as high as 54% uh, of the tax will be paid for uh, by visitors. So each year, it moves slightly, and we depend on the state to tell us what the number is. Another big, huge, I don't even know if that's a big enough word, Affordable housing, the lack of affordable housing. What can you tell us about the Housing for All Task Force you convened back in 2019? What new projects should we know about? We've had great success with the Housing Trust Fund. Uh, Orange County, uh, in 2019, I impaneled a citizen group to give advice to the county, and we formulated an affordable housing plan. One of the things recommended out of that plan was that the county should create its own housing trust fund, and we did that. Uh, so in 2020, we created the fund and began to put $10 million into the fund initially, and then each year it goes up by 10%. So the first year, 2020, we put $10 million. The second year, $11 million, and it goes up. The goal is over a 10-year period of time, we will put in a total of at least $160 million. We will use those dollars to help incentivize the building of an additional 30,000 housing units on top of what the market would have produced. And so we're well underway with that uh, process. We have leveraged uh, the taxpayer dollars that is a derivative of general fund revenues, avalorum taxes, we're using uh, to help stimulate the building of workforce housing within Orange County. We're partnering with private sector partners, nonprofits such as a Habitat for Orange and Osceola County, and some other groups that we have partnered with to build affordable and workforce housing throughout the county. We have built uh, multifamily and senior units and single-family dwellings in Holden Heights, Pine Hills, uh, East Orange County, and Apopka, and various other areas of the county uh, since we started this initiative. In fact, uh, one of the uh, ones that got the biggest attention, a partnership with Universal Resorts of Orlando, they created a, their own uh, nonprofit, and uh, we broke ground a couple of months ago now on a 1,000-unit workforce housing development called Catchlight Crossings that will be built 
in the International Drive Corridor. So this is a place where individuals have to qualify by income. These will be uh, low, medium-income families to low-income families who will have lower rent payments because of the dollars that we put in, the land that Universal put in, and the partnership with uh, financial lending institutions to build that right in the International Drive corridor. So those who will work uh, in the corridor will have the opportunity to move into those apartments and be close to work where they don't need an automobile to move around. They can use the local circulators that are moving around out there. They can get access. The plan is to have the Brightline train that is now operating here uh, within the region. As you know, Brightline is connected to Orlando, and it stops at the Orlando International Airport. What we want to do is to piggyback on the Brightline infrastructure and run the trains west out of the airport into the International Drive corridor. Brightline itself wants to run its trains uh, west to the Tampa Bay area, so they want to connect Orlando to Tampa Bay. For us, what we want to do, we need an east-west connectivity uh, to get into the tourism corridor uh, for our workforce, so our workforce would be able to take Sunrail, we will expand Sunrail uh, east or west coming out of the airport. So if you live in Osceola, you'll be able to come into Orange. You can get to the airport. You can get from the airport to the iDrive corridor, and workers will be uh, on that commuter rail. So we have big plans. If we don't come up with a true mass transit system to move all of the people who are moving here, traveling here, uh, we're going to have just total gridlock at some point. And so as the leaders of the community now, my vision is that we will work uh, through public-private partnerships to plan for generations that are not yet born so that they uh, have the ability to move around in our community. Ahead, we will hear more from our conversation with Orange County Mayor Demings, including efforts to address violent crime in the region. And hey, we want to hear from you. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about or what you're glad you heard. You can email us at engage at wmfe.org, or you can send us a talk back on the free WMFE app. In the menu, just select send us a talk back, record your question or feedback, then hit send. And there's always good old-fashioned voicemail. You can call 407-273-2300, extension 246, and leave us one. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. Listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Ahead on the program, Sean Welcome always wondered how to parlay his skill of the spoken word into a service to his community. In 2021, the city of Orlando bequeathed the honor to him. Being the second poet laureate for the city of Orlando, that's history. The first black poet laureate for the city of Orlando. You know, I feel like there's so many moments that feel it's kind of historic. Like I'm, I'm really paving the way for something or somebody or somebody else to be like, you can really be a poet. Orlando's poet laureate joins us to wax, wait for it, 
poetic. Right now, though, let's return to our discussion with Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings. Mayor, this month marks a year since four people, including a little nine-year-old girl and a former TV reporter, Dylan Lyons, were shot and killed. After that event, you reconvened the Citizen Safety Task Force. I was reading just it's a 48-page report of these recommendations. Have any of them been implemented or funded or any of them working? Yes, I initially impaneled the Citizen Safety Task Force back in 2021 at a time when multiple youth, uh, children, were shot and killed, sometimes by other children, sometimes uh, they were caught up as innocents in gunfire. I was moved to do something about that because, quite frankly, the fundamental reason that government exists is really ultimately to keep the people safe. Uh, so that task force uh, made recommendations about investing in early prevention and intervention-related programs for our youth so that we could have appropriate adult supervision and mentoring them so that they never get into juvenile delinquency would prevent them from perhaps going down a path where they make a poor decision that has lifelong consequences for them. And so we invested $2 million as a result of that initial task force in providing funding for community-based organizations right in the neighborhood, grassroots organizations, to be able to mentor youth and provide good quality spaces for youth. That program was well underway, and in February 2023, we saw the tragic incident where a child, nine-year-old child, was shot and killed, an adult female, and a local news camera person was was shot and killed. Uh, That moved all of us to some concern, and as a result of that, uh, Orange County re-impaneled the task force, and the task force came up with four broad recommendations, programs that would work to prevent crime from happening, programs that will intervene in situations where juveniles have become delinquent or making poor decisions that would include even such thing as mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, mental health counseling, and other services. And then the third prong was enforcement working with law enforcement agencies to come up with better strategies to maintain a safe environment for for everyone. Our law enforcement agencies increased their patrols. We funded additional patrols for the sheriff's office through Orange County's normal budgetary processes. And the, the fourth prong was on prosecution. So prevention, intervention, enforcement, and prosecution. The state attorney at that time chose to participate in the program and come up with an adult civil citation program where adults who committed minor violations of law, misdemeanors, uh, could be put into uh, programs that would uh, work with them uh, to minimize having a criminal record, but hold them accountable at the same time by volunteering, mentoring, Uh, going to anger management classes, a number of things that the adults could do, and it was the Adult Civil Citation Program. And a pilot was done in which 
the Orlando Police Department, Orange County Sheriff's Office, and the Kissimmee Police Department piloted that program. The current state attorney has indicated that he intends to expand the adult civil citation program to all law enforcement agencies within the circuit, all local law enforcement agencies within the circuit. That's Orange and Osceola County. On top of that, uh, each year, on top of what Orange County was already allocating for youth-related programs, which was approximately about $67 million, we said that each year we would allocate an additional $2 million to go to programs that will work in these four purposeful areas that I talked about. And we also uh, worked in partnership to, uh, with the federal government to receive some grants for mental health treatment, counseling, and s- substance and behavioral health treatment services uh, for individuals. There are many persons who commit crimes because of their mental illness or their substance abuse or the co-occurring issues. And if you can treat that person, what we found is that over time, you can reduce the recidivism the number of times that they reoffend because they become more healthy. So we have invested in uh, programs to support that. Uh, we have invested in people, a program called a Credible Messengers Program that involves people who uh, have street-wise uh, uh, experiences. Some of them are formerly incarcerated individuals who paid their debt to society. They're back out, and they are positively contributing to the community, and as mentors, boxing coaches, uh, martial arts instructors, uh, as um, all types of um, uh, programs that provide services to the youth through the Boy Scouts, the Boys and Girls Club, and other community-based organizations, we're providing funding to those organizations to work with our youth right in the neighborhoods where they are living. And the Credible Messengers program is off and running. We have trained individuals in the program, and the goal is to reduce violent crime within our community and by directly building relationships with those youth who are disproportionately exposed to violence. And Orange County has about 53 zip codes. Through a prior study that was done, we know that nine of the zip codes represent areas where youth are disproportionately impacted by juvenile delinquency, teenage pregnancy, high school dropout rates, poor housing conditions, etc. So if you have heard everything that I've talked about, we're addressing all of those things. We're addressing housing. We're addressing health care deficits. We're addressing where there are food deserts, a lack of access to good nutrition, and then these other uh, mentorship types of programs. We're putting money in all of those things that over time, uh, in the last uh, 20 years, uh, we have seen a reduction in crime. We have seen a reduction in the rate of persons who are being arrested, uh, both juvenile and adults, over time. And so it's a long-term strategy that has uh, paid dividends for us in this community. That's Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings. He joined us in studio last week. (music) 
On Tuesday, Governor Ron DeSantis spoke about concerns with legislation from state lawmakers to ban social media accounts for children under 16, even if their parents allow it. The Florida House overwhelmingly passed the bill last month. A similar measure is being considered in the state Senate. I think that right now, federal law says no social media accounts age 13 and under. Now, I don't think these companies are necessarily following that, but but that is federal law right now. What the legislature is proposing is to add 14 and 15 to that, uh, which would be an expansion beyond the current federal law. Uh, And what I've said previously, these things have huge legal hurdles. They've been held up in courts. Uh, I don't want to go down the road of doing something that is not going to be going to pass muster legally. The bill doesn't list specific social media platforms. We do know it targets sites that track user activity, lets kids upload content and interact with others, and uses features designed to cause compulsive use. We also know Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, encouraged the Florida House to find other solutions. Now, lawmakers in favor of the ban contend it will protect the mental health of children. We talked to licensed marriage and family therapist Charlotte McCullough. I began the discussion by asking her exactly what kind of impact she is seeing social media make on children. Seeing uh, younger children or teens or families, I have noticed that there are some challenges when it comes to social media with teens and adolescents around bullying Um, Also around the comparison and mainly the whole addiction piece where they're on social media more than they're doing their schoolwork, more than they're engaging with their families and and different things like that, as well as being exposed to sexual predators. That is very true. That's one of the major concerns. How do you know if your kid is just being a kid on social media or if they actually have a problem? So when it becomes an issue where they're avoiding engagement with friends, doing their daily chores, doing their schoolwork, and it takes precedence over everything. That's when we know it's more of than just use, it's more of an addiction. And what I normally say to parents or caregivers is go on to your children's social media sites and really explore what are they looking at? What is it that has their attention? Who are the people that they're engaging with? And who are the people, you know, that they're meeting up with if they're older and meeting up with people, or just go and find out what those conversations are like. So you mentioned it kind of being just an addictive obsession. So proponents agree with that. And this bill would just, you know, set a start date, like in July, that it would go into effect. But if you were talking about someone addicted to something else, you wouldn't just tell them to stop cold turkey. So how do you kind of safely get kids off of this, what they're calling addiction? So what you're mentioning is more or less like uh, step therapy, like taking different steps, you know, and stepping down or saying, hey, we're going to go towards two days a week on social media or three days a week on social media. But no matter what we choose to do with social media, my opinion is that if our children want to be exposed to social media, they're going to find a way to get to social media. So this bill, if it's passed or if it's not passed, Our children will still find a way to get to it if they want to. I would suggest that parents become more engaging with their children, having those conversations around social media and really digging into what is it on social media that their children are involved in and not just giving your child a device, 
and letting them do what they want to on that device. And as a parent, the other thing, Sharon, is taking those, taking um, control of what your children are watching, you know, use the parental controls that's on the different social media sites, on your computer, on the cell phones, and do as much as you can as a parent to prevent those different things from happening. Also suggesting that you set a time of how often your child can be on social media, setting those boundaries. You mentioned that kids are going to find a way, and this bill doesn't even include apps used for private messaging between people. And it also, it doesn't really name specific platforms that are targeting. What kind of responses responses do you anticipate kids are going to have to being told they cannot just a flat out ban like this? Well, it's just like if this happens to an adult, something that we totally enjoy, something that we rely on for connection, something that we really um, have developed a habit over, we'll be upset. I, I can see children acting out and being upset and then Who's to say that our children will not go on these social media sites and make up false accounts, make false, um, you know, <laughs> accounts and saying that, hey, I'm 18, putting in false birth dates. I mean, what can you do? I did hear something about they'll be asking for people to send in their driver's license, but will they? Will we really be able to do that? I mean, it's so widespread. Social media is so big now. I mean, I, can, I can't see where it will be able to be controlled, even with this bill passing. And social media is so widespread. I'd like to flip it on the other side. There are some positive uses for it. Um, some teens, right. they could be using it to look for volunteer opportunities or church events or maybe, in the worst case, getting information during a school shooting, which unfortunately they train for now. So right. do, you, do you feel like this could put teens in the state in somewhat of a disadvantage in that way? Well, I don't think it will put them in a disadvantage, but I do think that we will see a lot of negative behavior around it um, because our children depend on social media. They depend on it for connection. They depend on it for building relationships. Social media, just like anything else, it's not all bad. It's just the way that we use it. You know, so I can't say that it will be a terrible thing, but I do know if this bill is passed, we will see a a lot of uh, really, um, I think, negative behaviors from our teens and our children, because it's their way. It's their way of communicating with friends, with family. It's their new way, you know, of um, connection. No, I'm thinking about the younger people in my family and just they have a phone in their hand. That's just how they grew up. That's (laughs) how they communicate. They text, they get online. That's what they do. Absolutely. It's the norm now. It's normal to have a cell phone or some device. The smaller children, some of them don't have cell phones. They have a tablet that has Wi-Fi capabilities. It's just like a little computer. You know, it's the way that they connect with their games. It's Some of them um, have tutoring on social media. They find out about a lot of things. It's not all negative. Do Absolutely. you anticipate any maybe unexpected consequences that parents should be aware of if this were to progress? I just think that our children... I think it would cause them to go to something totally different. If it's not social media, it will be the next thing um, that they will find for entertainment, for connection and different things like that. Do you think this is something that parents need to get in front of? Could this be that disruptive to their lives? I think so. Parents need to be extremely involved with it and keep a pulse on what's going on and how to get involved and have those conversations with their children around this band. Because I'm sure um, a a number of children have been exposed to it and there's chatter um, amongst their peer groups about it. So 
I would definitely encourage family, caregivers, parents to have that conversation with their children and not to not invalidate what they feel, but just allow them to talk about it and speak about it and validate what they're feeling. Are there prompts, ways to start that conversation? So I think it should just be an organic conversation, sharing with your children, you know, age appropriate, developmental uh, age uh, appropriate, and having that conversation and just asking outright, what do you think about this bill? Have you heard about the new bill around um, banning, you know, social media for children or teens 16 and under? What are your thoughts about it? And just having that organic conversation on the way to school, at home, um, over text or however you connect with your teen or your children and just have that conversation about it and allow them to really speak candidly about how they feel. Are there other things parents can be doing to protect their kids? Any other advice to them? So I think the main thing is getting into your children's world. So finding out what are the things that entertains them, find out who are the friends that they have, and having those conversations. I think everything starts with an organic conversation, not interviewing, where it's a rapid fire of questions, but just an organic conversation about their day, what's going on with them, not how did your day go, what are you doing, but just an organic conversation, age appropriate, and getting into their world with sincere interest. Sherlet McCullough is the founder of Centerpiece Couples and Family Therapy in Winter Park. Coming up, when Orlando's Poet Laureate speaks, people listen. You'll hear why in a special performance for us. If you miss any part of the show today, you can always subscribe to the Engage podcast and listen when it's convenient for you. The program will be available on demand at WMFE.org. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. So the city of Orlando has an official storyteller. Sean Welcome is Orlando's second poet laureate. The UCF graduate is an ambassador for literary arts. He educates and entertains with his performances. The professional poet shared his passion for spoken word with us. The conversation started with Welcome describing the role of Orlando's poet laureate. For me, it just means representing all that poetry means in a city, Um, the celebration of literary arts, the celebration of storytelling, having someone to embody that across your community and represent that and to just have people just kind of point and say, there is value and space for this art form in our community and we want to include it in as many spaces as possible so that people see that we value that. Having someone embody that a few years at a time I think is really important just on so many levels you know like looking at inspiring increased literacy rates or inspiring different stories to be told our own story I mean like as a city those representatives' personal stories coming to the forefront. Um, There's just so much that being a poet laureate can mean. And I think each one will bring their own fingerprint to that space, right? 
What's a typical day like? What are some of your duties in this role? So, I mean, part of the contract, I'm only committed to six city events per year. And I custom write for four of those. But the title draws a lot of attention and intrigue. So when I go into a non-contracted space, I would still be announced as the City of Orlando's Poet Laureate and just be myself and do what I do, right? So a typical day, to answer your question, might look like memorizing a poem all day or writing something new for some other project, right? So it's, it's, it's a mix between keeping myself organized. And I'm a little different because I'm a full-time poet and speaker. So my business as a speaker is sort of intermingled with my title as Poet Laureate. And so a typical day for me may not be the typical day for some future Poet Laureate who might have another job outside of their Poet Laureate-ness, if that's <laughs> that's the word. Today, I'm having an interview with Sharon Stone on NPR. So, that, you know, this is part of my typical day, too. What's one of your favorite experiences as Orlando's Poet Laureate? Well, last night was crazy. <laughs> last night was amazing. I don't know if this has to do with me being a Poet Laureate or not, but um, for those who don't know, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, basketball icon, just uh, had his jersey number retired in uh, at the Kia Center, and I wrote the official uh, tribute for him and his legacy here, which was played on the Jumbotron, you know, yeah, Shaq, Penny, Nick Anderson, then it's got like all the old heads came back, uh, JT, Jeff Turner, you know, some of the old players from, you know, the mid-90s, and and uh, he watched that video and was like, I mean, I don't, even, I don't even have any words for that, what that was, but I was at the game versus OKC last night, and um, after the game, they had his um, jersey retirement ceremony, which was... I mean, it was crazy. I mean, this is the first jersey to be retired from the franchise, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm like, that is historic, you know? So really, last night I felt like I was really a part of history. And, you know, of course, being the second poet laureate for the city of Orlando, that's history. The first black poet laureate for the city of Orlando. You know, I feel like there's so many moments that feel just kind of historic. Like, I'm, I'm really paving the way for something or somebody or somebody else to be like, you can really be a poet and that's it. You know, you can really share your story and inspire others and educate and encourage. And like, that can be your thing. And you live off of that and support a family. Like, I feel like I'm really modeling in many ways, you know, in the different ways that I move, how to, uh, how to do that. Opening Steinmetz Hall was incredible. The very first performance of a multi-million dollar venue was me, you know? Like, I christened Steinmetz Hall with spoken word poetry, and the response from the Orlando community for that was like, I mean, there's just been so much. I'm, I'm, my heart is full, I'm blessed, you know? I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say. You know, I'm really, you know, I am living my dream, you know. It's a, it's a surprise in, in, in some regards because I, I didn't think as a kid I'd be 
like a poet, a speaker, you know, like you talk your whole life. It's like one of those things that's hidden in plain sight, you know, so you don't think of speaking as a career. You have to talk to survive, right? It's like, there's no way out of it. So to kind of come back to, oh, I'm an effective communicator and I'm creative and people want that. You know, there's uses for that in business, in education, and, you know, there's all sorts of uses for that. And so um, I'm grateful that I've been exposed to National Poetry Slam and just the spoken word community all across Central Florida and abroad. Uh, It's where I got to sharpen my own skills and what was initially just fun and competition at some point ended up being a service, you know, to people. So. So what are you writing about currently, February 2024? So February 2024, um, I have a new piece that I wrote called Black Rose that celebrates the youth poet laureate of California. I don't know if she still has a title now, but Amanda Gorman, everyone should know who she is. She did the presidential inauguration uh, poem. Uh, the Hill We Climb, and, um, you know, it's just had a lot of success. And so I, I wrote, like, an ode to her, which I'll be performing at uh, the City of Orlando's official Black History Month uh, event uh, coming up February 20th. I wrote a poem for... There's a, a global pet expo coming to the Orange County Convention Center. Uh, I'm going to kick off that conference with a poem that celebrates the joys of the human animal bond and kind of okay. you know do something like that so that's done i just got to work on memorizing it um there's another piece that i wrote for uh universal orlando resorts um it's more internal i don't even know how much i could talk about that but you know you, you asked me what i'm writing I, you know what i've found is that you know writing for organizations or helping to tell other entities stories using my skill set that's how I get paid you know and it it, as long as the messaging is consistent with my values uh I'm fine I'm fine with doing that and every artist is different you know and be like oh what does this have to do with me you know it's like no writing for other people is cool would you mind sharing one of your choice a bit with us now Sure. Yeah, I'll share. I'll share the Black Rose piece. I I, I like that, and it is uh, Black History Month. So, um, shout out to um, Amanda Gorman. Um, I call this piece Black Rose. It's kind of just an image to kind of drive the 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 concept. First of all, Black Roses don't exist. That's not a thing. But you know, with poetry and creativity, you can kind of uh, make it a thing and. The image that I wanted to draw was, you know, a a black rose kind of growing out of concrete or a sidewalk. It's kind of like a rare thing. And I think Amanda Gorman is rare. Like you have a 22 year old African-American female with a speech impediment doing spoken word poetry at a presidential inauguration. Like how rare are those factors on that stage, right? And so I wanted to paint this picture of, yeah, Black Rose growing out of um, concrete. Quick backstory before I do the poem. <laughs> this is silly. Uh, I wanted, I usually run my poems by my wife or whatever. Okay. And then I had this like forethought of, wait a minute, this is going to sound like 
I wrote a love poem about another woman and asking my wife what she thinks about it. <laughs> anyway, that's not the case. But anyway, just wanted to show some love and uh, pay my respects to the young sis. And uh, I'll go ahead and perform it now. When black roses grow in the cracks of sidewalks, one might stop and stoop and stare at the rare butte because the truth is it doesn't occur naturally in nature, notwithstanding poetry and perhaps cinema, yet somehow they still exist supernaturally against the odds still speaking to crowds, a small bunch of interlocked tongues telling tales of resistance and hope, growing in the cracks that is the crack in your throat, the auditory disorder you describe as a superpower pause. Have you ever seen a black rose or heard of a black girl's poem called The Hill We Climb behind a podium of prestige, pulling a parcel of performance poetry on a national pedestal, opting to operate in the wisdom of owls and the strength of oxen, overcoming more, I'm sure, than what you've made open to the public. Everyone within earshot of a black rose knows the difference between AI and an actual endocrine system, releasing emotional electricity. Trust me, Ali too was 22 when he took to the throne i guess creative types don't get the same reactions as punches thrown the black poet is a black rose ode to amanda may your profile continue to grow in the cracks of sidewalks that is the crack in your throat telling tales of resistance and hope who knows maybe one day we'll all say with confidence there is such a thing as a black rose that's it. Thank you for sharing that. I, I don't. How did you do that? Just so our audience knows, you don't have anything written. <laughs> uh, I did write it down at one point, and I memorized it. Um, and I memorize most of my work. I liken performance poetry to wine in some regards. There's a certain way that I like for my audience to consume my work, and some wines are meant to be paired with dessert. Like there's a certain way to be experienced. And so for me, uh, my preferred method of people experiencing my work is audibly and through performance. And so uh, it's very intentional. I write and memorize most of uh, my poems and that's it. The mayor and city council appointed Sean Welcome. The budget was 3000 a year. Council moved to make it up to 6000 for his increased public engagement and approved related expenses. You can find more of Sean's work on his website, seanwelcome.com. And hey, while you are online, you can learn more about today's program by visiting our website, wmfe.org. You can find this program on demand there. That is all for today's edition of Engage. We will be back on Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. We want to hear from you. Email us at engage at wmfe.org. And before we go, I did want to mention 90.7 WMFE is partnering with the Timaqua Arts Foundation to support the weekend of Timaqua Amplifies Black Voices performances. Talia Blake will be there on Friday night. I'll be there on Saturday evening. For a complete list of weekend performances, you can go to timaqua.com. I'm Sharon Stone. Thank you for the company. All Things Considered is coming up following NPR News. We leave you now with the sounds of students of the School of Chinese American Association of Central Florida. 
The Little Dragons are preparing for the 2024 Central Florida Dragon Parade, celebrating the Lunar New Year. The parade is February 25th, but these kids can't wait to hit the street and hoist their elaborate red parade dragon. Two times, guys.